Welcome to the podcast, Being All of Us. It's great to have you here. My name is Brian David George, and my mission is to inspire you to become an agent of change in your own life through the stories of people like you from around the world who are on a journey of self-discovery and inclusion. I believe that these conversations will lift you up and help you to uncover your potential and to become your higher self. This week's episode of Being All of Us is sort of a special episode. I caught up with an old friend from high school, and <laughs> honestly, the first part of this episode, we're kind of just catching up, which I think is is a fun twist on, on the podcast. You'll hear a lot about where she's been, and that's actually kind of cool. For some of you guys like to geek out about different places because she's been all over the place, lived in so many different places. And it's also a very, uh, it kind of talks about what what it was like being a kid and growing up and yeah, going through life as a teenager and hearing somebody's story. So the first part is, you know, basically I was just catching up and we actually re- recorded this in two different days because we ran out of time the first day. And the second part is kind of reflecting, I guess, on some lessons that we have learned. So sit back and enjoy this episode. Uh, It's a little different and I hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the Being All of Us podcast. Today I have the honor of being with an old friend, Sanaya Palmer Bauman. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. It's been, we were just talking before we started recording, it's been maybe 27 years since we spoke last thereabouts yeah can you believe that no not really <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe like if i had to think about it honestly i'm like have that many years gone by that certainly dates us doesn't it <laughs> it really does it really does because weren't the 90s like 10 years ago what <laughs> <laughs> It's I feel so, like it was just the 90s. Right. It's, it's crazy how time... Really you know, there's a really interesting theory that I've heard about why time seems to go faster the older we get. And it's because when we're five, six, seven years old, you know, a summer is eternal. Like we don't even... Because we have nothing to compare it to. Correct. So the more summers that we have to compare time to, the shorter and shorter they get. This is true. I, I have this conversation or I have had this conversation with my children as, as they've gotten older, because like kids, just like we did when we were younger, we had a lot of those I'm bored moments <laughs> and there's nothing to do. And five minutes of waiting to them feels like an eternity. Mm. And I've watched as they've grown to like, you know, what do you mean? It's Wednesday already. I still have to do, you know, this thing <laughs> or the other. But I remembered, you know, like just a mere three years ago, that same child would mm. say, you know, why is it taking you? I wish it was July already. And I'm thinking, <laughs> really? Because I feel like if I just blink an eye, it is going it's to be gone. July. <laughs> yeah, July's already gone. Never mind. It's here. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's true. Mother of three children. I, I'm not going to tell your story. I would like you to tell your story. So tell, tell us about your journey. Where are you now? Where have you come from? Who are you, Sanaya? Sure. Oh, wow. Quite the journey. So I don't know if your listeners are aware that we are from Newport News, Virginia. So I left uh, Newport News in 1995. 
I actually, I'll, I'll try to shortcut part, parts of this. As a result of a relationship in my very early uh, adulthood, I moved to Nebraska, actually, and lived in Nebraska for a couple of years. Yes, well, that's I far know. from Virginia. Uh, very far from Virginia. Lived in uh, Nebraska for a couple of years, just outside of Omaha. And it was actually mm. a fantastic experience. Uh, really, it, it changed who I am and sort of opened my eyes to the potential of of life and what Mm. I could be and met fantastic people who are still lifelong friends. And that relationship then brought me to Massachusetts in 1997. Mm. When that relationship ended, I decided that I wanted to stay. I, I liked this idea of living in New England, living out of the Mm. South, nothing against the South. I love the South, but it just seemed and felt very sort of progressive. I'm about an mm. hour, not even an hour, maybe 45 minutes south of Boston. I'm only about 20 minutes from Providence, um, mm. very close to Cape Cod. So I, I moved to the Southeastern Corridor. We refer to ourselves as Southeastern Massachusetts, the greater New Bedford area, for those of you who are mm. familiar with Massachusetts. I was in college when I left Virginia and dropped out when I, when I moved. Mm. Uh, when I moved to Massachusetts, I went back to college. I was not, I don't know if you recall, was not a very studious student um, while in high school, with the exception of the many choirs that I and you uh, were part of. Right. Um, other than Spanish, that was probably the only course that, which you and I actually were in Spanish courses. I think we were yeah. in the eighth grade together. Probably. Senora Frierson. So I think that we were in, in eighth grade Spanish together, but um, Spanish all throughout high school. And, and I loved Spanish. I loved choir. And that was as studious as it got for me. And then I went back to college in 1997, earned an associate's degree and went on to the University of Massachusetts in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, where I earned a bachelor's degree in English writing communication shocked my entire family. Um, they could not believe that I went, that I not only went back to college, but that I, you know, graduated. And during that time, I was also working mm-hmm. part-time at a community college. And that began my trajectory in what is now a 23-year career in public higher education wow. uh, within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, I started off at a community college in this area, was there for 16 years. And then about almost eight years ago, I left that community college and moved on to my alma mater, UMass Dartmouth, Mm -hmm. uh, working in the undergraduate admissions office. I am now the associate director of that Mm -hmm. admissions office. How does it feel to say that? Just to- um, Sometimes when I say it, honestly, it's it's shocking. And Mm -hmm. it's this, um, I have this thing that I've done ever since I was a kid. And it's always been this, a, a day in the life of Sanaya. And mm. it's it has, the name has changed throughout the years. Brian knows that my nickname throughout <laughs> high school is actually Cece. So I was Cece Palmer all throughout high school. So even during those times, I was mm. the day in the life of Cece. I, when I journaled as a, as a teenager, it, it was always the day in, in the life of dot, dot, dot. And I still do that. I still have these moments in my head and it's sort of this, and I don't know if it's part of it, I'm sure is imposter syndrome, you know, and and very natural. Yes. And, 
you know, I'm sure that there is some pride in there also, a mm. little bit of disbelief. It's a it's a culmination of different things. But to say that I am the associate director and to know what I do for a living as someone who once upon a time was not a studious child to work in support. My life is dedicated to to education, to higher education. I do have a soft spot for first-generation students, I will mm. say, and students who struggle and apply to college with this sort of mindset of, I don't really know if I belong here. And I, I, I am always open to share my story that I was once upon a time sat in your seat and thought, what the heck am I doing applying to college? And I look back on that now, and sometimes it's in disbelief and, and that I actually that I actually did that. I did later on go on to complete a master's degree. Uh, so I do have an MED um, mm. in student affairs counseling. So mm. there's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot there. Um, so, so now here I am, I married my now ex-husband and we had three beautiful, have three beautiful children. So Isabella is uh, 17. She is a junior in wow. high school. Quincy is 14. He is in the eighth grade. That's my my hockey player. And Olivia is 11, going on 25. Um, <laughs> there's a story there. Uh, there's a story there. And they are fantastic. My ex-husband and I mm. um, share equal custody of our children. And so they live between his home, which is only about 12 miles away, between his home and my home. And so our children have access and relationships with both of their parents and all of their family members. I have been with my current husband, Ben. We've been together, see, Olivia's 11, so we've been together. Sorry, I do all of my math based on my children's ages. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. <laughs> for, about, <laughs> for about nine years. But in 2019, we decided that our 40 something year old selves were going to take the plunge and get married. And so we married uh, two years ago. We actually married on the campus. He actually mm. works at UMass Dartmouth as well. So we're, we mm. are both alum. We were on campus as students at the same time, did not know each other. And we both ended up working at the same community college. That's where we met. And then we both ended up moving back to UMass Dartmouth to work. And so the, it's, we, we have a, we have a cute little story too, but he is, he's just, he's amazing. He's fantastic. And he's still sleeping because this is not, the world does not exist right now for him. And yeah, that's where, that's where I am. I'm actually loaning, my daughter loaned me her microphone for this podcast. Oh, and um, nice. yes, yes. I have very tech savvy children. So Is that Olivia? That is Isabella. Olivia. Isabella. Did, okay. Yes. Uh, Olivia actually did not. She hesitated when I asked her if I could borrow her microphone. Uh, she sort of hesitated. Like, I'm not sure that I want you to borrow my microphone. <laughs> Where Isabella did. And Isabella gave me, made me test her microphone Ooh, and nice. set everything up. And yes. Yeah, so typical older first child where she is already starting to mother me. So. I, since you're talking about, the, I'm I'm curious to know. I don't remember. I know you have a brother, Jeff. Is that right? I do. 
I do. I actually How have many... two brothers. Yes, I have two brothers. Melvin is five years older. So when we knew each other, he was already, he had joined the army by the time we were mm-hmm. in the seventh or eighth grade. Jeff and I are a year and six days apart. And from the fourth grade, uh, so I repeated the fourth grade. And so from mm-hmm. the fourth grade on, Jeff and I were in the same grade. You, a lot of people, it's so funny because of Facebook and, you know, and all these different social networks. It's amazing. I learned how many people thought that Jeff and I were twins. Mm. In fact, um, I was thinking we that. The same grade. Yes, everyone. And I did not realize that all throughout high school that there were a lot of people that thought that we were twins. Huh. Yes, Jeff was quite popular, unlike myself. He was, <laughs> he was very popular. As a matter of fact, when I first went onto Facebook way back when, Someone had said to me, are you related to Jeff Palmer? And I thought, wow. So this whole Jeff Palmer's sister is never going to go away. You know, Sanaya, Um, you've brought up the word family so many times since we've started this conversation. I would love to hear a little bit because I feel like family is a very central value for you. Yes. And so maybe I would love to hear a bit more about like your family, not not the one that you've created, the one that you come from. Like, yes, tell me a bit more about Um, So my parents, Merle and Connie Conchita, Mm. still live in Virginia, still live in the exact same house in Newport Mm. News, Virginia. So we, my siblings and I, my family, we were a military family. I was actually born in Okinawa, Japan, and lived there for the first about six years of my life. Um, Mm. My father is originally from Virginia, from Reedville, Virginia, which is sort of central Richmond, greater Richmond area. My Mm. mother is from the Philippines, which you may recall. And my parents married in 1968 in the Philippines after knowing each other for six months. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Um, And my father, they met, of course, during the Vietnam War. My Mm. father did two two tours of Vietnam and he was stationed uh, at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And that's how he met my mother, who was working on base. And they met and married. They were around 19 years old when they so young. married, very young, and had Melvin within the first year, or not within the first year, but 1969. So August of 1969 is when they had Melvin. And then they moved to Virginia, actually. My father went to Korea for a year and my mother and my brother stayed with my parents, my paternal Mm. grandparents Mm -hmm. um, in Virginia, which was a journey of her own. My mother did not speak as fluent English at that time. And so she was essentially living in this very tiny house with my grandparents and my my brother, mm. my my father, sorry, my father's two sisters, but that established a long lasting relationship with my father's side of the family. As a result, they returned, well, my father, sorry, my father returned from Korea. My parents then moved to Okinawa, where both Jeff and I were born. So I, I love to say that for my first birthday, I got a brother. So I do not <laughs> remember life before, you know, before Jeff. As far as I recall, he was always there. And then we moved to Panama City, Florida, where we lived until 1983. So I started school in Florida and we left and moved to, my dad was then stationed at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia in 1983. So we actually lived in sort of the Yorktown 
greater Hampton area. So the military housing area was called Bethel Manor. Mm. So Bethel Manor was, it, it is the place that for me was where many, much of my formative years existed or were formed or developed. Lived in Bethel Manor from 1983 until 1989, no, 1988. So this was most of my elementary school years and went to Mount Vernon Elementary School in Yorktown. And then I went to Yorktown Intermediate School for the seventh grade. So this is where I formed some of my first emotional relationships, female with, with females, with males, my first boyfriend, my first kiss, all of those different <laughs> things were there. And we had this fantastic group of friends. Jeff and I had this fantastic group of friends who as military kids do, we all move on to different places. And so, you know, you have this great group of friends as hmm. that seems like you were mentioning summer feels like it's a troll when you're a child, hmm. those summers feel like they felt like they were eternal. But when I look back, it was really only like two or three years before we, we moved. And then we moved to Newport news in the, towards the end of my seventh grade year of mine and Jeff's seventh grade year, moved to Newport news and went to Dozier middle school for eighth grade. And the rest, as we say, you know, one of the things for, for anybody who's wondering there, the area that we are both well, that, that we know each other from the area that I'm from, it's it's got a lot of military there. I think there, yes. I think it's changed possibly since since we were young, and I think that it was probably one of the greatest concentrations of military bases in all of the country, which meant that a lot of people who were not from there would come and go. Which at this point in my life, I feel so grateful for because that exposed me to people who are not just the people from Newport News, Virginia to lots of different people. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious if maybe those that kind of group of friends that you were talking about in elementary school, were they also military kids or were they, yeah. Yep, yep. So this was actually a military base that we, okay. that we all lived on. And so we had friends that were from, some of my closest friends were from Arizona, Colorado. I had a friend from Spain, actually. Wow. Yep, and friends from Pennsylvania, so in terms of that and understanding that we we moved because my father's about to retire, so we stayed in Virginia. But some of my friends either went back to where their fathers, because in mm. most cases it was their fathers that were military. I know that's changed so much now. Right. But growing up it, in the 80s, it was your dad that was in the military. And our friends that were from Pennsylvania went back to Pennsylvania. Mm. Our friends that were from Arizona or Colorado went back to Arizona or, or Colorado. I did find that for the most part, my friends that were from another Southern state, they stayed in Virginia. Just those who were not from the South <laughs> went back to their corridors of, of the US, mm. which I just, I find so interesting. But I think for me, having lived in Florida and then Virginia, I think I really, I knew that I wanted to be Somewhere in the Northeast, I thought I, I'd always end up in New York City. I'm so grateful that I've that I wound up in New England. I love I love living in New England. So I'm gonna. There are so many things that I would love to ask more about, and I'm yeah, gonna I'm gonna focus on a few of them. One of the sure, things sure. that I've that I hear you talking about is basically migration, and it's funny because as I'm hearing you tell your story, there's so much migration already. You know, in your parents' case, just them. And, I, you know, I'm not even thinking about where their parents and their parents and their parents. So there's already been so much movement 
in your family. Yes. When you were born, you know, you were born in a different country and then you, you know, you already moved around so much. When was your first conscious intentional migration? Uh, that was leaving Florida. I remembered how sad and hurt and upset hmm. that we all were to leave Florida. And I think, you know, my brothers and I were all school age, so we developed friendships and I can remember loving my school. I mm. remember very clearly I was in the third grade. My last day of school was in October of 1983. Mm. And it was a Friday sort of like fun activity day. And I remembered my teacher allowing me to choose what the activity was going to be. And then I also remembered there was a wicked thunderstorm happening mm. at the same time. And we lived on the panhandle of Florida mm. and you would get these terrible, terrible storms. And they're just random. They're sort of like, you know, the teacher like talking over the, you know, the thunder, <laughs> you know, and it was just this very normal thing. And that memory just has mm. always stayed with me. There are songs to this day that I will hear that will remind me of being in the backseat of a car that my mom or my dad was driving. And it'll literally put me in, in that place. And it's weird. Like there are times that I'll hear a song and I don't realize it. And then all of a sudden it'll, it'll just have this impact on me. And um, I keep saying that I'm going to write the songs down back on the chain gang by the pretenders is one of them. Mm -hmm. And so I have loved that song my entire life. And that's, one of the reasons why, and there's, there are, there are just a bunch of them. And it's just so interesting that when I hear mm. them, they just, they sort of touch me in a certain way. That probably was the one that impacted me the most, even though I'm very cognizant and remember very clearly the subsequent moves, leaving Bethel Manor and moving to Denby and into our Newport News. And did you uh, move from Florida because of your father's job then? Absolutely. My okay. father was given the choice of two bases. One was California mm. and the other was Virginia. And he chose Virginia because that's where he, where he's from. And I remembered mm. in high school when I learned this, when I learned about this, mm. I remembered thinking, why did you, didn't you choose <laughs> California? We could be California. Your life would have been so much different if you had gone to California. So much different. My husband and I talk about this all the time. My, mm. my husband did not grow up in a military family. His family mm. is very, very much a New England family. And uh, his parents, though, at some point moved to Texas, greater Dallas area. And he and his brother were very young when this happened. And they lived there for, I'm not sure how long. It was not a very long period of time. But their parents sort of had this break in their relationship during this mm. time. And so my husband and his brother and mother actually moved back to Virginia or moved back to Massachusetts mm -hmm. and their father stayed in Texas. Long story short, everything worked out and they were back together. But what my husband always thinks about, my husband falls very much on the liberal side of politics. And he often wonders, had his parents not had this break in their relationship, if mm. he had lived in Texas and grown up in Texas where would he fall politically mm. knowing what part of Texas he lived in, you know? And so he, he often ponders who he would have been had he grown up in Texas. And it's, and it's very interesting. And I think about those things too. It's very true that if we'd moved to Florida, I mean, to California, who knows mm. who, who we would have been. I, I'm curious to know how you think that 
So, okay, so how old were you when you went to Virginia? Around, you said, seven, eight, nine. I was uh, eight going on nine. Yeah, or I just, okay. nope, I just, I was eight when we moved to eight. Virginia. So Virginia is the South. You know, it's, yes. it's. I, I like to, to say it's South and Mid-Atlantic. Like it is a bit more, it's not as Southern as some other places. And it's the South. Right. And right. so I'm, I'm curious as to what your experience was like being a child and a teenager in the South with, you know, your origins. Your mother was Filipino, mm-hmm. your father's African-American. What mm-hmm. was that like for you living in the South as C.C. Palmer? <laughs> you know, the... I was, and you may recall this, I was a bit of an oddball. I mean, I tried in my own way to find circles to belong to. I was mm-hmm. never very good about understanding or knowing what was trendy, what was popular, what people were doing. I, you know, having moved, when you move from one area to another, even moving from Bethel Manor to Mm. Newport News, which is literally, well, not literally, but it's probably about 20 minutes away, 20, 25 minutes away. I was such an outcast when I, when, when Mm. I went from Yorktown Intermediate School to Dozier Middle School I was such an outcast. They also, you know, put me, I was, I was painfully shy for much of my Mm. early childhood, incredibly shy. I would not raise my hand in class. I would not speak. I, I mean, even if a teacher called on me, I would freeze. I did not like attention on me. Were you always this way or did this change at some point? I was always this way. I was that Mm. way from my parents say from the time that I started school. So Mm -hmm. when I started preschool and older that I just I was very afraid of people outside of my family, unless it was close family friends, but I was very afraid of people. I do remember feeling that, that Mm. fear and that, that angst, that anxiety, I can remember that. And so coming, going to Dozier was a terrible experience for Mm. me. It really was. It was, it was so terrible that I think that I needed And I don't know if I ever made a conscious decision to do something that was going to be different Mm. or that I was going to try to be different, but I know that I made some, I made some very adult-like choices Mm. in the eighth grade and and, and as an attempt to belong to something, to, Mm. to belong to someone. And by that, I mean, I actually became sexually active in the eighth grade. Mm. And having no idea what I was doing or what I was getting myself into, it was just sort of a, out of desperation, I was willing to raise my hand and volunteer to do whatever, Mm. because I needed to feel like I belonged to something because I couldn't stand the loneliness. And I was Mm. always, and still deal with this now, I was always a very lonely child. Even having friends, and you and I would talk on the phone for hours, even having friends like you and Irene, I don't know if you remember Irene. Irene. Yes. I was always a very, I was always in my head and still very much am, but I cope with it differently. I, I welcome it. Now I welcome Ooh. the loneliness and I, I, and I enjoy that's, that's, that's an it's, sol- <laughs> it's solitude, right? There's a difference between solitude and loneliness. There is. Well, so the loneliness starts off as loneliness and it starts off as this sort of dark cloud and this, mm. like, I feel very alone. 
I feel alone. I feel in this rut. I feel that no one can penetrate these walls. I can't mm. begin to explain to anybody how I'm feeling. I was, when I think back and I tell people this a lot, I was a crier. I was a, I would sit in my room. I would have playlists that, you know, cassette tapes, that music, <laughs> songs that I would listen to because I knew that I needed to cry and I needed mm. to be alone in my moment, I needed to cry, but I needed my music. I needed my soundtrack to, mm. you know, there was a lot of Phil Collins going on in my <laughs> great bedroom. Um, but I needed that in order to sort of supplement mm. what it was that I was feeling. But I look back on that and I appreciate that I had, that I mm. found this way to deal with that because again, it was that was sort of protecting me from taking these other risks, you know, there were some, there were things that I was, uh, that I was doing that I did not understand and see that they were actually very, it was very risky behavior. Mm. And I didn't see that, but what I would, how I would sort of justify that with myself was in high school. I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink. Mm. I, you know, I saw that as that, that was, was the risky, behavior. right? That was risky. What I'm doing you know, like this is not, this is not risky, you know, but what I didn't understand was what I was actually doing to myself on the inside, emotionally. I, I didn't understand that. And then I had to kind of cope with that in my twenties with all of those decisions that I made. You know, before we started recording, we were talking a bit about your name. Yes. And, and I, <laughs> I kind of feel like this probably has something to do with what you were saying back in in school, when we knew each other, you were CC, and you said that you haven't been CC since then, and that you were CC. Well, could you kind of tell us about why? Yeah. So it's fun. So I I I was CC because in the fourth grade I had a friend, um, Sylvia Ellison. I don't know if I, I'm going to suggest that she listened to this podcast, but she's she's one of my old Bethel Manor <laughs> friends, and and Sylvia and her family were new from, and I think they'd moved from Arizona at the time, and she nicknamed me CC, and I thought that she was the coolest person in mm. the world. She was the most mature fourth grader I'd ever met in my life. Mm. And she just seemed very worldly. And I thought that's cool, you know? And so I went with CC and that rolled over anytime someone would say, I mean, I think it was like in high school when they would say to you, and if you have a nickname or if you have a preferred name you want to go by, mm. let me know. So like my brother's Jeffrey, he always wanted to go by Jeff. Mm. And I think I took a chance at mm. some point, and they're like, Sanaya, do you go by anything else? And I think the teacher at the time was sort of like, I hope you want to go by something else. Like, please don't make me you know, <laughs> butcher your name. And I just said, uh, oh, yeah, Cece. Mm. And I don't think that many people knew me as Cece. But from that point on, I was Cece. What was it about Sanaya that that you were avoiding? Oh, gosh, I I didn't like that my name was so complicated, that it was so different. Hmm. That it was in my entire life. And this is, and I really don't mean this in a bragging way. My entire life, when I would say to people, my name is Sanaya, I, the reaction was usually, that's a beautiful name. And I didn't see it that way. I didn't feel like it was a beautiful name. I felt like it was this very like clunky sort of too many syllable. I wanted my name to be like, I think Mallory was a name that I loved. Oh. I wanted my name to be simple. And I also probably didn't like that my name sounded kind of ethnic, to be mm. honest. That is another journey. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that I didn't I didn't like that is how my name probably sounded to me. 
I liked that I had friends that whose names were Jenny and Jamie and mm. even Sylvia just seemed to like, it was a very smooth name. And, mm. you know, my brother's names are Melvin and Jeff. <laughs> And then Sanaya. <laughs> How did you end up with Sanaya, right? That's my, well, so there is a story behind that. My godmother, who was Okinawan, mm. her name is Naya. And mm. they wanted, my parents wanted my name to start with a C, like my mother. My mother's name is Conchita. Mm. And my brother, Melvin, was just sort of, he was five, sort of like mm. rhyming all these different things with Naya. And he said, Sanaya. And that's it. Wow. And they went with that, which what I, now I look back and I say, thank you, because my mom wanted to name me Julia. And I'm really glad that she didn't. <laughs> I would have loved if she named me Victoria. Who's, that's my my maternal grandmother. I would have mm. loved Victoria, but she wanted to, to name me Victoria, but hated the name Vicky. And did. Mm. And at the time in the 70s, no one there were no Tories. So she you know, wasn't even aware of the nickname Tory. So she refrained from that and then named me. My middle name is Francine. It was supposed mm. to be Francisca, but my dad had to fill out the forms and he put Francine instead of Francisca, but he misspelled it. So it's actually oh. F-R-A-C-I-N-E. So it's actually Francine on my birth certificate. So that's another <laughs> joke that my middle name, my name is actually Sanaya Francine Palmer. But so that's where my name came from. And yes, I, I definitely feel that I, I, so when we were in high school, my parents decided at that time that they wanted to return to the church. Hmm. My mother was raised Roman Catholic in the Philippines. My father was raised Southern Baptist and we did not grow up going to church. We would go to midnight mass on Christmas Eve because that's what Filipinos do. And that was, that was pretty much it. I, well, not, I'd gone to church with a couple of different friends and throughout my life. And, and when I was 14 or 15, my dad decided that he wanted to return to church. And so we did, and we went to church on Langley Air Force Base. And this was a church that was the closest to a Southern Baptist, but mm -hmm. specifically a black Southern Baptist church. Mm -hmm. So that was the church that we went to. It was called Chapel Three on Langley Air Force Base. And my parents very quickly became part of this church family. My father became a deacon. He was the mm -hmm. choir director. He was all these different things. I also would assist in, in being uh, directing our church choir. But we mm -hmm. had the Sunday school teacher who became, I think he'd had a stroke, if I recall. He had a stroke. It was, it was a mild stroke, but he was out for some time. And during that time, they'd asked me to sort of fill in as Sunday school teacher. And I really honestly didn't know what I was doing. And I kind of just, what I did was I kind of made it like this youth group thing, because honestly, I, I didn't know enough about the Bible. I didn't know mm. enough about Christianity, but I liked this group. And I liked that mm. this was an opportunity for the teenagers, because it was all teenagers to, mm. to be able to open up and talk about different things. Mm. And it was, it was great. It was nice. And so when the teacher actually returned, he'd said to me, do you know that your name is a Native American name? And he said, there are many variations of it. Shania is one of them. Sanaya is another one. And he spelled it for me. It was S-E-N-A-Y-A. -A. And he said, there's a meaning behind your name. He says, it's a very common name, actually, in Native American cultures. And it means I'm on my way. 
at the time I was like, oh, but I was still sort of in this mindset of like, yeah, but I hate my name. <laughs> so that has never, it's never left. And, and that, that conversation, that comment has like, it, it would pop up in different mm. times throughout my adulthood. And then I would learn things like, I met this man from Tanzania who'd said that Sanaya is actually, is also a common Tanzanian name and it means gifted by God. And it's also, Sanaya is also a common Russian last name, which I don't know what it means in Russian, but I mm. know that Sanaya is a common and it's spelled differently. It's it's actually spelled T-S, T-S-N-A-Y-A or something along those lines. So um, so it's also common, but that it's pronounced Sanaya. Huh. Um, and so I just, that meaning behind it. And it's funny when Shania Twain became popular. Yes. I went through years of people going, oh, like Shania? And I would go, no, <laughs> not like Shania. But Shania, that was not her birth name. That was her name that her stepfather who adopted her gave her because he knew who, who, who was native. Hmm. And he gave her that name. He nicknamed her that because of the meaning behind the name, which is I'm hmm. on my way. And he knew from the day that he met her that there was something about her that was so powerful that mm. she was on her way to something great. And that's what he nicknamed her. And she legally changed her name to Shania because of that. Wow. Um, and as a tribute to her stepfather. So like, it's just, it's, it's, mm. yeah. Yeah. So that's the story behind, behind Sanaya. And now I no longer go by CC. I enjoy CC, but Sanaya is 100% who I am. Who you are. You are on your way. Sanaya, welcome back. Hello. So, great to have you back. We we started this uh, on a different day, and it actually just, <laughs> the conversation was longer than we had time to have that day. So we're now having the second part of it. So uh, just now, as we were catching up again, before we hit the record button, we were talking a little bit about the conversation we had the first time and about some of the things that, that really kind of, some of the things that are maybe not talked about as much as they could be. And we were talking about how uh, one of the things that you mentioned when you started middle school, I guess, was you felt kind of like an oddball, uh, kind of like an outcast. So I would love to, to hear you talk a little bit more about how that maybe was part of your journey, how being an oddball maybe set off part of your journey as to who you are today. Sure. And I, I think that you hit the nail on the head by saying that that probably started me off on, on my journey. Hmm. Because I, if I had to think back on when I first actually realized or identified myself as a quote unquote oddball, it does go back to when we moved specifically to Newport News. And I think it's because I had been in a different town, a different school system, and I'd had this, this group of tight knit friends for several years and suddenly found myself in, in a brand new school system 
And even though it's a town just a few minutes away, the makeup of the population was very different. Not in what, as in what way? So in a variety of ways, there weren't quite as many military kids, whether or not, the, you know, folks were there as a result of the military or what have you. It just wasn't as prevalent as it had been when I lived in at Bethel Manor, the place that I moved from. And then what I also found was there was much more I found of a separation or segregation ethnically hmm. than what I had seen previously. There, I, I, you know, when I entered into Yorktown Middle School prior to moving, I did there. It was it was a little bit more noticeable there only because you you know we went to it. We were moving from elementary school to the intermediate school. And we were in an intermediate school in Yorktown, Virginia, that was now students who were from other schools, other elementary schools, and we were all placed into this one intermediate hmm. school. And so I did see it then, but I think I still had the quote unquote safety and protection of my close knit group of friends. Hmm. And we were a, div a very diverse group, a variety of backgrounds, ethnicity, race, and so I think I still had this sort of like safety net of my friends where it's okay that there was this group over here and that group over there because mm. we were our own group. Now moving to Newport News and in Dozier, I didn't have that. So I needed to sort of set out to figure out which group did I belong to? Mm. And I didn't know. I mean, I think I was sort of looking for, not even realizing it, probably looking for a group that sort of looked like a mix, you know, something <laughs> that looked like my old group from, from Bethel Manor. And I, I can remember at the beginning of eighth grade, I hung out with two girls who seemed, who were in my class, who seemed nice and they seemed friendly. And I thought, oh, these girls are nice. And both, mm -hmm. both of the girls were Caucasian. And I thought, oh, they would be great. And so we were friends for a little while until I finally realized that they really didn't want me to be part of their group. They were just sort of being nice. And then I sort of fell into a different group of three girls who were all African-American. And they were nice to me, like two of them were nice to me. And one of them was sort of like, I, I really want nothing to do. Like would never make <laughs> eye contact with me, would never. I would just sort of like force myself to sit with them during lunch. And the other one would like, you know, would stare at one of them with these sort of knowing eyes where, you know, silent <laughs> conversations, you know, um, with the eyes. With Telling you that you didn't belong with them either. I did not belong right. with them. And the other two were sort of nice to me. And then inevitably they must've had, I imagine some sort of conversation where they all agreed that they were going to tell me that they didn't like the way that I dressed and that I wore these really weird boots and that they didn't understand why I wore these boots. And I don't know why I think back to these boots, the boots, <laughs> the boots and how it was sort of like, and, and I re remember very distinctly one of them saying that I seemed a little like I wanted to be white based on the way that I dressed and based on the way that I talked. And, and I remember sort of like defending myself, like, no, I don't like, I, I, I don't. Mm. And not knowing how I should be, how I should talk. And, and so I can remember sort of developing this characteristic where I would change the way that mm. I would speak in certain groups. 
I had a, a, a close friend later on who would say to me that I was such a chameleon. Hmm. And she, oh my and, God. And I remember she wasn't saying it in a way that I, that I felt was kind, hmm. but she, the way that she just, she was essentially sort of saying like, I was very fake. I'm, you're such a chameleon. I, when you talk to these people, you talk like this. When you talk to these people, you talk like that. It wasn't until about 10 years ago that I learned the phrase code switch. Code switch. <laughs> and understanding that, you know, when I first learned about code switching, I went, oh my God, there's a word. Mm. Like there's a word out there in the ether and there's a whole culture and an understanding mm. that that's something that people do. And I always saw it as something to be embarrassed about something that you were always, I, I found it felt like it was more like it was a hiding. Like I was hiding myself, this element of myself from this group. Mm. And then around this group, I was hiding myself around this group. And throughout my life, when I look back now, there was so much code switching that I had done mm. in my life just by virtue of growing up half black and half Filipino because, and I don't know who of my family or my friends will hear this because of course I'm going to tell everybody, <laughs> listen, but I can remember visiting my father's parents who were from Virginia and lived in mm-hmm. Virginia and his, his family actually. And when we moved to Virginia, we would see them a little bit more, not, not as frequently as I, as a child would have liked to have gotten to know, mm. know my extended family. But when we did, I always got this sense that we were sort of treated like we thought we were better somehow mm. because we were mixed. Mm. And I could never, I, I never felt, I never had the connection with my grandparents. My grandfather died when I was nine or 10. That I just never felt that I ever gained the type of connection that I would have liked with mm. grandparents, aunts and uncles or cousins. And where my father is from, everyone that sort of lives in that general area is somehow a relative. And, you know, I remember spending time with them at various points throughout my early childhood, but just never, ever making any strong, there was never a strong bond or or connection that I'd made with them. And then on the Filipino side of things, while we never really got to know my mother's family because they all lived in the Philippines, Mm -hmm. even though I was born in Japan, we did go to the Philippines a few times when I was very young. I have very, very little recollection of my grandparents of my mother's on my on my mother's side. I remember cousins. I remember sort of these blips in my mind of being in the Philippines, but I was also very young. But we grew up and growing up in Virginia, Virginia had, especially important news, had a very a pretty prominent Filipino community. And so which we actually belonged to, there was actually a group called PACP, which is the Filipino American community of the peninsula. And we belonged to this group. And I don't know if Mm. you remember that I belonged to this because we would do these performances every summer. All of the kids would perform. And the reason why I bring this up, and I am so sorry to have to bring this up, was that one of the big things that we we were big on, this is like eighth grade, middle school, what have you, was we were really into, I'm going to say it, Debbie Gibson. Yes. And I say that because (laughs) you and I had a very strong bond over Debbie Gibson. 
um, we had some Debbie Gibson button switching going on. We were like sharing buttons. I have these very, I have these pictures of you with your, your adorable haircut. with like these bangs and a jean jacket and your debbie gibson buttons and i just remember that and i just and and believe me this is like i this is a memory that is filled with so much love because we would really get into these conversations over the phone about debbie gibson but i bring this up because we would perform a lot of debbie gibson's songs during these these in the filipino american okay Yes, and the, so it was always a combination of we would have to do some type of traditional Filipino dance. We would mm. sing songs in Tagalog, which is the national mm. language of the Philippines. And then you could perform anything else. And they would encourage, especially the youth, to perform. And I remember one year there was a big fight where Mallory Pasquale performed Foolish Beat and Irene wanted to perform Foolish Beat and Mallory beat her to the punch and performing it. And she even did like this very specific dance to it, which was Debbie Gibson's dance to the song. It was like this big, wow. it was a big deal. Yes. But <laughs> circling back to that, I fully embraced being part of this Filipino mm-hmm. community, this, this group. But because I was half black, I was, I know, and I even knew during that time that I was never fully accepted into the group because not only was I half black, or in this case, I was only half Filipino, but I had more African-American physical traits, whereas my brother Jeff looked a little bit more Filipino and less African-American, and he was actually much more accepted into the group. So when we would have these performances, if it was a dance, there was always a costume that accompanied the dance and it was the traditional costume that that accompanied that specific dance i was never asked to do any of the dances ever Hmm. my brother was so beloved by this group Hmm. number one because he had such a big personality and he had this enormous sense of humor and he was always very charming and they all loved him all the filipino moms just ate him up you know and (sighs) He was always part of a lot of these things where I was sort of the, when we would sing, it was everybody. It didn't matter. You didn't have to be in costume. You had to dress up, but you weren't Mm. in costume. And it was sort of like this collective of all these kids coming in and we were just like a, a chorus singing these songs. They would include me in like the side performances. So there was a year that Irene and I and another friend of ours performed uh, the Supremes Can't Hurry Love. And it was very, very well choreographed by mm. Irene's mother. And she'd actually hired someone to come in. Wow. That's professional. Chore- <laughs> yes. And 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 yeah, they mean they mean business. I will say mm. that karaoke has always been very pervasive in Filipino culture. I own three karaoke machines because okay. there's no way we we like to entertain. And when we do, when we did pre-COVID, karaoke is a very big factor in our household in terms of, and that's something that's carried over. And so, so when thinking about code switching, that's something I had to do even as a child within my own cultures, within my own communities, to try to sound much more African-American or what I thought and believed to be African-American and less African-American 
when speaking in when within the Filipino community hmm. or to look because I never I, I, I've always sounded the way that I sound. I've always spoken hmm. this way and in, in, in terms of like my cadence and how I speak and grammar and all of that. But it was more so the way that I looked, the way that I presented myself. Hmm. My hair was never really fully out when hmm. we were in, you know, it was always very tame and pulled back and sort of, you know, because that was where my ethnicity, my African American mm. ethnicity really lived was in my hair and hair has always been part of my story mm. and continues to be. The joke now is I have a very Filipino mom's haircut right now, <laughs> but I have, I have from probably in my early 20s, have always worn my hair very straight and blown mm. out and have marked and noticed the difference when I don't. And I, I have actually very extremely curly hair. And <laughs> when I wear it naturally, people do treat you differently. And I mm. have always had a really hard time with that. So it's it's those things were very prominent for me, right? right even in the eighth grade, the what are you questions um, why do you sound that way? Do you talk that way because you're mixed? And I'm like, well, my dad's from the South and my mom's the one with the accent. I, mm. I don't sound like either of my parents. So that's kind of a stupid question. But mm. trying to understand who I was was difficult. Even in the eighth grade, we, we were doing, I, I'm sure, I don't know if you remember, Iowa testing. We would have to do the oh. standardized testing. Standardized tests, yeah. Yes, and I can remember my teacher, we had to fill out the ethnicity portion mm. of that. And this is in the late 80s. And so there was always the question of your ethnicity and it was a choose one. It was always a choose one mm. in my upbringing. And I remember raising my hand and saying, it says to choose one, but I need to choose two. And my teacher said, well, why would you need to choose two? And I, you know, well, because my mom is Asian and she would go, oh, and she was very confused by this. Oh, okay. And she goes, well, and she goes, let me ask the principal. She would, she literally, literally left the room Wow. to go ask the principal. And she came back and she said, okay. So the principal said that you should put whatever your mom is. And I said, okay. So I put Asian and she goes, well, I mean, I guess. So then another student in the class raises his hand mm -hmm. <laughs> and he goes, and he was very clearly a, another brown child in the mm -hmm. class. And he'd said, well, my mom is German. And she said, well, there are black people in Germany. And he'd said, my mother is blonde with blue eyes, <laughs> you know? And she goes, your mother is blonde? And she mm. goes, yes. And he goes, my mom is white. And she goes, Oh, and he goes, so should I put white? And she goes, well, that can't be right. She left the class again. Wow. Came back and she said, so just leave it blank. Hmm. And what she wanted to say was, you look black, so you should put black. Because hmm. what she was trying to do was talk us out of putting anything other than black. And both of us sort of like stood our ground where we were like, absolutely not. And I said, are you kidding me? Like, Yes, my father, my father is black, but my mother would murder me if I didn't identify <laughs> as as Filipino somewhere in there. And I think mm. that this other student felt the same way. 
And so those questions of what are you started of trying to box us into one category when it's not true at all. Many years, correct. Mm. Many years of trying to be boxed in mm. and also many years of trying to figure out how to box myself in. Later on, a few years later in high school, I had a friend say to me, yeah, I understand why you want to identify as Asian. And she was Af she, she is African-American. Hmm. And she said, but that is not how society is going to see you. And so you need to identify now. You need to realize that even though you respect and honor your mother's culture, that is not how the world is going to see you. And I remember thinking to myself, like, absolutely not. I'm not succumbing to that. No. Nope, mm. I, I am this. I'm very strongly both. But my mother, you know, my father was in the military. So my father was gone quite a bit. My mother, without a doubt, like she raised three American mm. kids. And, you know, we grew up eating Filipino food. We grew up, <laughs> we grew up with, in, in so much of Filipino culture mm. that it would have been impossible for me to go through life and not identify as Filipino. Of course, today, mm. there's so much. There's a mm. Facebook Facebook group that I'm part of, and it's the Blasian Filipino group. And I don't identify myself as Blasian, but I certainly, it's just so great to, to belong mm. to this group of people that understand being raised in these two very strong ethnic cultures, to understand what it's like to identify as African-American, but also understand that rice, white rice is such a thing, like white rice means home mm. and certain ingredients in your, in your cupboard mean home to you, that they are ingrained in your, in your soul to try to have, to, to know that people understand what that means is just such a fantastic thing. And I wish that it, it existed when I was younger because I watched friends go through this struggle mm. of not wanting to, you know, racism exists in, within every single culture, every single one. I can remember being on the school bus and my mom being at the bus stop and kids on the bus, black kids on the bus going, oh, look at that chink at the bus stop. And oh, and sort of Ooh. making all... And I remember like just sort of copying them and not realizing that they're actually refer they're talking about my mom. Your mother. I hadn't I had never heard that phrase before. I didn't know what that phrase meant. So I didn't know mm. that that's what, you know, who they were referring to. And and then it was sort of like, well, wait. And then it was like, oh wait, but that's my mom. But wait, like you're brown too. How come you're making fun of because it exists in every culture? And so yeah, yeah. You know, I often, when I refer to what it was like growing up in my generation and in, in where we grew up in, in Newport News, I, I really understand the, the concept of colorblind. You know, I, I think I was brought up to think that I was colorblind, meaning that I treated everyone the same, like I didn't see color, which is obviously insane <laughs> to say that we don't see color. And it's at this point, I understand much better that it's if I don't see the color of your skin and I don't accept it, then I'm not accepting your experience because your experience in the world and my experience are completely different. 
like you were just saying, you know, those kids on the bus who were black skinned were using a racial slur to refer to your Asian mother without knowing anything about her. I can think of, I can, you know, talking about, we didn't talk about race when we were growing up, at least not in my family. Like, you know, I got the message, you're nice to everybody, regardless of who they are. So in that respect, I do feel lucky that I didn't grow up in an overtly racist family. And I still understand that I grew up in a racist society and that there's a, a lot of like inherent racism. We live in a racist system. It's impossible. Anyone who grew up in the United States of America is racist. End of story. Because we grew up in systems that are racist. Yes. So it's very... It's, it's kind of strange to, to unpack this and say, okay, so if this is the case, like, so how, how do we change? So, how, you know, and this is also like the part of me that just wants to fix things. And I also understand that it's possible to just kind of hold space for it and say, wow, you know, this is really screwed up. <laughs> and I am part of something that's really screwed up. And I don't like being part of something that's really screwed up, you know, because sure. I... I want to see the people in front of me for who you, I, I want to see you for who you are. Right. And that implies, you know, that your experience as a child was drastically different from mine. We had Debbie Gibson in common. Yes, we did. Yes, <laughs> and we, did. we also had very different experiences in the world based solely on the pigmentation in our skin. That people, like when people saw us coming, they immediately thought different things about us. They assumed right. different things about us. Right. And, and, and that's so true. And it's funny, like in the, uh, in an ideal world, we would love to be able to say that we don't see color that we don't see, but the truth of the matter is there is this entire experience that is tied to each of us mm. based on our skin color. Mm. And, you know, and I, and, and I understand this because I have friends who are struggling right now with the social injustices that mm. are, they're not more prevalent where they're just more prevalent visible media, <laughs> right and they're saying but you know i don't see color like when i look i don't see color and and it's and it's hard to have to break someone's heart to say mm. but you should mm. but you should i had a very kind coworker who said to me just a few weeks ago well you've never experienced racism <laughs> and I know that she meant well. And, mm. and so my response to her was, well, can I ask you what you think you mean when you, when you say that? What and do you mean by I racism? Yeah. Right. What do you mean by racism? And can you tell me what it is about me that you feel as though I somehow would have been omitted from having any of those types of experiences? Mm. And her reaction was like, before she could verbally say anything, her physical reaction was to sort of do this, like, well, look at you kind of a thing. <laughs> and I, and so my, my initial, my reaction was, are you referencing the way that I speak, the way that I do my hair, the fact mm. that my husband, like the fact that my mm -hmm. children are half white, are you, you know, what, which part of the things that you know about me? are leading you to believe that I have never experienced any of these things. Are, are you, if you are asking me, have I ever walked into a classroom and instantly recognized that I was the only one who looked like me mm. and that other people, not everyone, but other people 
the class also looked at me like, oh, there is a person of color and oh, does this mm. person belong in this class? That Have I ever had that experience? A a absolutely. Uh, it, it, would, it would be impossible for me to have not had that experience. So trying to get people to understand and to see and to, without shaming them, mm. without making people feel, because I'm always about intentions what other people's mm. intentions are. And I, and I understand that most people have the best of intentions, which is why I'm not big on attacking people or making people, wanting people to feel attacked. And at but, the same oh, time, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yes. yes we know this. Yes. Yes. Hmm. It's one thing that I hear people say and that I, try to keep in mind myself is I'm going to screw it up. It's okay to get it wrong because that's how I learn and to be willing to accept that I'll get it wrong before I get it right. And to keep going, you know, to keep having the conversations, to keep bringing it up, to keep yeah. finding as many people to talk about it as possible with and right. saying, you know, this is something that we have the power to change. Like we have, we literally have the power to change this. We have the power to make this better. And it starts by just sitting down and listening to people talk about their experience, you know, and it's uncomfortable and that's okay. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Change is always uncomfortable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we are coming to the end of the time. I could I could listen to you talk for hours on end, like literally. Before we, we do end, I like to end each episode with kind of a challenge for people who are listening. Something, a little bit of, I'd say, homework <laughs> from our conversation. Something that you think someone else could do that might inspire others to be agents of change in the world. So um, what, if you... Let's imagine that you have, I don't know, you have this opportunity to give somebody a challenge. You say, okay, you can be an agent of change in your own life and the world. I challenge you to do this. It can be something really, really simple. What would it be? Oh, gosh. Something that's there's, there's small. So, there's, there's so many. I guess I, I, I would say learn yeah. about someone's experience that is the exact opposite of the experience that you that you've had I, I i guess it's sort of carrying on with what you what you just talked about in terms of of learning put yourself in an uncomfortable position by asking someone about their experience i i hmm. mean even if it's just somebody like the somebody that you see in a shop or like a, somebody who works in a place, it could be asking them something simple. Yeah, it could be asking someone something simple. What I have always found in my own experience is that I have a tendency to tell myself a story hmm. that I've made up in my own head about someone else. And then I love hearing that their story is, <laughs> I, I could not have been more wrong about their story. And hmm. I love that. And I love, I, I, I just, I love that. Like I, mm. I have had, I had my own story in my head about you, about who you, and I feel like just in these two instances, my story, my, what I believed your story to be completely different. And I love that. I love that I, that I have learned these things 
I think for me, the best way to do it is I love listening to audiobooks on celebrities. Okay. Hearing their backstories hmm. because it complete and it's always a celebrity who I don't like. <gasps> That's an amazing challenge. That's the one. There it is. Okay. Yes. So maybe choose somebody that you work with or that you don't, hmm. that you don't, that you, that you sort of like this person's personality is this way. And I don't like this person's personality. I don't hmm. know. Maybe find out their story and maybe you'll understand hmm. a little bit more about why they are who they are. Ask them to have coffee with you one day at work, you know, have a coffee break with this person and just be curious go for, and go for a walk, go for yeah. a walk with that person. And just, yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. It's been so great to, to reconnect. I have, there, there's like no words for how happy it makes me to, to have you as a guest on the podcast. So I'm truly grateful. Thank you so much, Sanaya. Thank you. I am honored to have been able to be in this space with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you can feel the inspiration and passion that we put into this conversation and that it empowers you to be confident, compassionate, and courageous on your journey, on our journey, to becoming all of us. If you enjoyed that conversation and you'd like to hear more, please be sure to click on subscribe or follow to get your weekly dose of inspiration. And remember to stop by and rate us with a five-star rating on the App Store. Leave your comments below. Let us know what it is that you enjoy about these conversations so that we can bring more of them to you. And stop by Instagram to follow us at the Being All of Us podcast. B-A-O-U podcast. Thanks to the group Bombadil for our intro music, Avery, and to Scott Gratton for our outro music, Motown is Yotown. Come join us again next week for more. Until then, shine bright, you beautiful soul. You are the change the world needs. Go out and shine.